Hi there, and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number three, and I'm Eric Armstrong, and I'm the acting area coordinator at York University's Department of Theater. I teach voice, speech, dialects, accents, and Shakespeare text. Um, and with me today is Phil Thompson. Hi there, I am indeed Phil Thompson. I teach at the University of California at Irvine, where I run the graduate acting program, and I'm also the head of voice and speech. So uh, this is our third episode. It's very exciting. Uh, yes. We're digging in and getting to know more about uh, this week of vowel sound. Uh, and uh, uh, this week we've chosen the I sound, the sound in words like kit, ship, uh, this, uh, itchy. Um, it's it's uh, quite different from the last vowel sound that we looked at because it's not a, a, a vowel that has a potential for length. It's a checked vowel in that it has to have a consonant after it. It's always short, um, difficult to lengthen it in words, really. Though, uh, you know, this, I mean, if I'm really <laughs> embellishing a word, I suppose I can Yes, my it. mother could lengthen Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and my father did the second syllable, Philip. That's great. Um, so, uh, in in English, though, generally we're talking about yeah. a sound that's short, uh, even in a stressed syllable. Uh, and so there are two things there. It's it's a short vowel. That is to say, in English, it's usually short in the stressed syllable, and it's also checked. That is to say, it never happens without a consonant after it. Right, right. Uh, it also can be in stressed syllables. But it can also be in unstressed syllables, yes. um, and uh, uh, sometimes variations of of the e vowel in some accents are pronounced i in others. So, for instance, uh, you might say believe. Other people might say believe um, as an alternative for that weak syllable. Yes. So you could think of kit as a species of relaxed fleas, mm. and that that's. Quite true historically too, isn't it? Absolutely. the The original sounds that were uh, spelled with i uh, were i sounds. Uh, we talked in show number one about whiff moving to wife. Uh, the unstressed ones, though, stayed pretty much where they were. They just got a little more relaxed. So it might have been more like whiff. There's a lot of conjecture here since we don't have any recordings of Old English. Uh, so, e in weef might have relaxed towards with, uh, uh, rather, in a word like city. The final e sound, mm. generally speaking, is relaxing towards an i, and the first sound city uh, is not moving very far from its historical roots. Yes. In that case, too, it's spelled very much the same way. Um, but uh, uh, i ultimately is almost always spelt with the letter i, isn't it? Yes. Almost always. Uh, there are a few few instances where it's spelled with a Y, right? Myth, and things like that. There's one instance where it's spelled with an O, and that is women. Women. And, you know, there's busy and business where we've got a U. Um, and a few E's like pretty and England and English. Mm -hmm. um, build and guilt, U-I. But generally, 
it's an I, it's spelt with an I. Um, short, the short I is sometimes called. Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, easily identified usually by native speakers, but for uh, second language learners or foreign language learners, uh, it is often a very difficult sound. I think that's partly because there's a relatively limited number of languages in the world that use this sound. Um, or that make a distinction between kit and fleece. Mm. They've, they've got their sound and it occupies that entire territory, so it's very difficult to think about there being two sounds that are so very much alike. Yes. So a uh, foreign speaker will say, he hit the kitten, uh, that's an E sound, so he hit the kitten. And it pretty much is the same sound, however it feels right to that speaker to pronounce it. Um, so, uh, in terms of what, what's going on inside the mouth of, uh, uh, of a speaker, uh, it's not far off from what we were doing with the E sound, uh, tongue tip behind lower front teeth, tongue arching up towards the front of the mouth, uh, so it's a fairly close, fairly front, unrounded vowel. It's not as intensely forward as we had on that E fleece vowel, uh, but uh, it, it is r reducing towards the middle of the mouth where that, that schwa uh, sound lives. So somewhere on that, that vector between e and the center of the mouth uh, is the i sound, um, which is going to vary depending on the person who's speaking and how stressed or unstressed that syllable might be, how unimportant it might be. It might get more centralized closer to the middle of the mouth. Um, but uh, fairly, fairly, uh, fairly relaxed in its tongue yeah, action. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a correspondence there that's uh, worth noting at this point, that in English, relaxed syllables, unstressed syllables, tend to be more towards the middle of the mouth. Mm. Uh, now, kit, as we're describing it today, happens always in a stressed syllable. And we'll talk uh, in a later episode about what happens when that it sound is occurring in an unstressed syllable. Uh, but there is a relaxation you could think of conceptually and historically from fleece, the sort of archetypal E sound, to this variety, which is it. It feels the same. It's very similar in action. There are some uh, variations that are more directly back, E, 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 or some that are more low, yes. And uh, I'd say that when working with a student to find out where that cardinal marker is, where that uh, distinct place is, I'm trying to aim for the center there, halfway between e at the very extreme upper corner of the vowel chart and uh, as you say, in the middle. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, ultimately. Uh, I, I find when I'm working with North American actors, I often am trying to push them a little bit closer to E because they're falling towards schwa. And when I'm working with other speakers who tend to uh, have less distinction, I'm pulling them away from the E sound and getting them closer to schwa. It depends on, of course, people's uh, um, you know, place of origin, where they're starting from. And often there's a, a stretching stretching this way or pushing them, encouraging them to go towards uh, a, a different sound. Um, so uh, 
we've talked about the history, we've talked about uh, the spelling. The International Phonetic Alphabet represents this sound with a uh, symbol that is interesting. It looks like a capital letter I, but it's a small capital. So it's the same height as lowercase letters like X. The, uh, typographers will call that X height. Um, so it's a, uh, a small cap I. And uh, uh, that's a, you know, s traditionally, if you go back far enough, other people have had different ways of notating that. They, they, they would have like a, sometimes you see it with a sort of a sans serif version of that. In other words, it doesn't have the bars at the top and bottom. But it seems to be that the convention now, even if you're doing a, a, a printing version of it, that you're, you're writing it by hand, that people put those serifs on the top and bottom, the little I-beam look to it. It, the symbol recognizes the similarity and kinship between the I symbol that's used for the fleece vowel. And yet with the serifs, it's different enough that you wouldn't get confused about which one you're using. Right. Um, so there's, there's no dot on it, in, in other words. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk briefly about um, the variations that we hear in other forms of English. Um, uh, what we might call accents or dialects of English. And that sounds like a, a good cue <laughs> yes. or a digression uh, about what, what we mean by an accent or a dialect. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that this can be a little bit confusing because uh, in some parts of the ling linguistics world, dialect is really used to describe a variety of language inclusive of all of its parts, its grammar as well as its pronunciation. Uh, and so dialect studies may be entirely about issues of grammar and vocabulary uh, and not so much about pronunciation. Uh, I, I heard somebody, and I, I'm sure that Wikipedia will tell me who said this, uh, the quote was that uh, language is a dialect with a navy. So uh, any, any body of people whose variety of speaking uh, is supported by their power as a nation, then you get to call it a language. Uh, but if it's a subcategory of the power group, their different language is just a dialect of the power of language. For our purposes, though, dialect is really... W w we're dealing with the pronunciation when talking to actors. And so there's another helpful description of what a dialect is, and that is the variety of speech of... English native speakers. Mm. So it would be profitable to talk about a Cockney dialect, but a French accent. So an accent in this case is used to denote foreign language speakers speaking English with, in an accented way. Yeah, so you could say that uh, their speech, their English speech has been accented by or flavored by their original language. And as an actor, the approach to those two processes, a, a theatrical dialect or a theatrical accent, is actually quite different in yes. that uh, someone speaking a dialect like the Irish dialect or the New York City dialect that you're working on, they, they are native speakers. So they're, they are accurate in what they're doing. There is a sense of precision. They, they uh, are never guessing at what they're doing. Whereas someone speaking uh, English with an accent, there's often a, a scale, a degree of, yes. of uh, their ability to speak English as a, a second, third, fourth language. And uh, so sometimes there's some variability. So they make mistakes. 
sometimes they have problems with uh, language. Now, as actors, often that, that's the job of the playwright to do that, um, yes. to add mistakes in. But uh, if you think of someone doing improv, you know, Second City, doing a foreign accent, they are going to be uh, using those, those uh, hooks as a way of differentiating from uh, someone who's doing uh, a, a dialect. So that's a, a theatrical tradition of those terms, accent and dialect. And I think that uh, listeners who aren't in North America will probably have a slightly different experience, that the linguistic use of accent and dialect is maintained in, in the theater uh, and the acting business in the UK and in Europe, whereas uh, in North America, the theatrical tradition of accent being foreign language is, uh, is mostly a theater school convention. You know, there, there is an argument behind saying that if dialect is inclusive of uh, grammatical and vocabulary differences, but accent only describes the variation in pronunciation, then all actors are really ever doing, for the most part, is varying their accent, varying the way things are pronounced. So there is a school of thought that says, if you're an actor or an actor teacher, you're only working on accents rather than working on accents uh, uh, and dialects. I think it's useful, though, to retain the term dialect because you're talking, as you say, about a different process of working. Mm. And I also think it's valuable because the business uses the terms <laughs> yes. in North America. The dialect is used in this way, accent is used in that way. And that tradition has not died yet. Um, so uh, as long as we acknowledge that, and we make it clear that we're not using the term dialect in its pejorative sense, that often uh, the reaction against the use of the term dialect is because dialect has been used as a way of you know, mere dialect as a substandard form of English. And uh, certainly that's not our intent if we use those terms. So when we think about the I sound, uh, we, get a, we get a very common variation in foreign accents, and that is the, the merging of I and E into a single group of E. And um, this, as we said before, is because uh, many, many languages don't have this distinction between I and E, and they only have E. And so they have really no choice when approaching words like ship, but to say sheep. Or, unfortunately, the word sheet is uh, variable with other words with ha which have a kit vowel in them. Um, so the, the uh, reality is that uh, even if you learn, as a second language learner, you learn that I sound, that you may not be able to identify where to apply it that you know that I should be using I sometimes, uh, but I'm not sure where. And so your mind goes, oh, E, uh, maybe I should put an I in here. And so we also get sort of hyper-corrections where they're adding I sounds to E sounds. Um, and so you might have a word like grease being pronounced gris. Yes. Um, so that that's a very common variation. Um, the, the other variation, uh, you know, there, there aren't a lot of other variations, I have to say, uh, in regional accents of English, um, that partly because it has not got a lot of room to move. If it um, moves up, it's going to be confused with E, and there's already somebody living there. Right. Uh, it has more room to move down and towards the center of the mouth. Right. 
So how w what would that sound like if it moved down or to the center? So if we said kit and we let it lower, it would be more like ket. And here in Southern California, sometimes we get that. And if it moved towards the center, kit, kit, uh, you'll hear that centralization in Northern Ireland. Uh, you'll hear it in, in Australia as well. Uh, it's not a complete uh, merger. I can't think of a place in which people say cut completely, but there is a slight drift away from the I towards I, I, I. So it's pulling towards the center. Exactly. Um. It might be useful, and uh, listeners can join in on this, to travel from the E territory towards the E uh territory. So perhaps I'll take the word kit. Okay. And I'll start up in fleece territory. Keet, keet, kit, 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 cut, cut. Now, cut, that's clearly no longer in the kit area. It doesn't sound right. And keet is not an error that a native speaker of English would make. But there's a lot of variation in which we'll still understand that that's the word being spoken. And I certainly hear in California, uh, centralization and lowering of kit. Uh, it's, it's a feature of, as I said, Irish accents. And I think uh, you mentioned before uh, the Midlands. Mm. That, that, uh, that takes me to one other place that, that can, you know, one other sound that can happen. And that is uh, when I is followed by N in the south of the United States, uh, we, we have a, uh, a situation where the, uh, uh, the, the territory of pin is being encroached upon by the word, the sound of the word like pen in my speech. Pen is moving up into the pin territory. And so pin has to move. And what it does is it gets tighter, closer to E, doesn't want to be e, so it becomes a diphthong pin, yeah. and so we get a, a glide on that sound, uh, and so it's neither e nor schwa pun, uh, it's both. It's a glide between them, a diphthong pin, um, and so uh, that's another response to an encroaching sound moving into your territory. So you have to keep those word groups distinct, and the way you do it is to add a slide to it. This reminds me, too, of something that's at work, uh, what J.C. Wells calls shading. Uh, the consonants surrounding the vowel will exert a sort of magnetic force. And so if we go back to the, a fleece sound, uh, field, or let's say stealers, uh, the L following it might pull the E down into an I territory, so you get stillers as you might in Pittsburgh. Exactly. Uh, and also in situations where uh, either because of stress or because of the voicing of the consonant following kit, you might get some of this lengthening that leads to what we've sometimes called a drawl, heum. Heum, yes. So there are a couple of forces at work there. Right. So uh, now uh, uh, I suspect that Stillers one of the, the, the parts of that recipe that I suspect was missing a little bit for you 
was that your L wasn't dark enough. Yes. Yes, to justify stealers slipping to stillers, uh, right? That uh, ultimately we need to have the back of the tongue engaging, which is ultimately going to pull the vowel that precedes it down towards that darkened L. Exactly. It's, uh, it's a matter of real estate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and in a way, partly an anticipatory articulation, right? That there's an anticipation for the, the, the L, and so we're setting ourselves up. And because there's a, a, a strong muscular contraction on that dark L, we, we're anticipating, and that ultimately colors the it. You know, it's easy for us to think, either in phonetics or in spelling, about each sound, each speech sound, being a discrete shape. But in fact, it's a dance and uh, you have to be preparing in one movement to step into the next movement so there's always a combination going on that 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 does lead us to a, a point about intelligibility and that is that uh, what is often perceived as more intelligible um, and that may carry more effectively in a theater is uh, a greater distinction between vowels and consonants and making those transitions between vowel, one vowel sound and, and the consonant that follows it with a, a greater sense of abruptness or greater distinction between those sounds. And uh, that often what is being taught in a speech class is the ability to make those shifts from one sound to another a little bit more distinct in order to make it more clear to the audience which sound you're on. Um, and uh, ultimately that can be a, a process of undoing what our tongues do, and not only naming our tongues, glossonomia, <laughs> but untying them too yes. so that we have the freedom to do things with them we haven't done before. Um, well, it's been a real pleasure digging into the kit vowel with you today, Phil. Um, uh, I think we'll be back next week looking at another consonant. Yes, I think we'll probably be heading towards t has the T sound, um, and uh, we'll have lots to talk about then. So, thanks a lot, Phil. Terrific. Nice talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Bye.